0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 3rd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Chicago is a special city with special problems, and many of the biggest problems facing Chicago can be traced to its structure. And that structure gives the mayor, whoever it might be, incredible unchecked power. Ed Backrock and Austin Berg are authors of the new book, The New Chicago Way, in which they detail Chicago's problems and some possible ways out. You tell a story about Chicago uh, and how we probably ought not to think of this as uh, the problems associated with Chicago as partisan problems, that these are problems of structure, that the mayor is the guy who's on top and everybody else derives some benefit or uh if they don't work at the pleasure of the mayor, their lives can be difficult if they defy the mayor. And this is from city administration, all from the top all the way down, uh, the mayor runs things. Why is that so wrong? Why shouldn't a mayor be uh, the head guy, the guy who's making decisions?
1: As we point out in story after story in our book, uh the city is in the shape it's in because it consistently makes poor decisions. And why does it make those poor decisions? Because all of the special interests and all of the stupid ideas that feed into a poor decision have only one focal point, and that is uh, the fifth floor of City Hall, the mayor's office. If you had uh, power distributed, and not atomized, but distributed, then you'd have uh, enough time to give deliberation to decisions. You'd have contrary opinions and you'd come up with a better solution to the problems.
2: Well, I would say I agree with all of that. We are the last uh, true strongman mayor city in America. And while most other cities often get a choice in their elections in uh, a few different executive authorities, whether that's sort of a city ombudsman function um, even an elected city attorney is in the case, as is the case in Los Angeles. We have uh, three figures who are elected by a citywide vote. and that is the mayor and then two other officials who are the city clerk and the city treasurer. And if you asked a thousand Chicagoans what the city clerk and treasurer do, you would probably get one who could tell you what they do, and that person probably works for either office. So we truly and, and then we have the legislative body, obviously, the city council, which uh, has become a rubber stamp city council. And Dick Simpson, who is a former alderman and has been a political science professor at UIC for 50 years, uh, has done amazing research on this, where effectively in Chicago, we do not have a legislative body full of legislators, but rather um, sort of mini chieftains that rule over every uh, nook and cranny of their ward via a bureaucratic power. Um, rather than taking up issues of citywide importance.
0: Now, I want to talk specifically about uh, how the the aldermen function in Chicago. But you write this uh, in talking about how deals get made uh, within city government. The mayor conceives the deal in private with vendors and interested parties, and then the city council approves it. In some cases, the matter is sprung on the city council with little information and no time for study. A vote is called and the city suffers the consequences. Now, you talk about uh, this in the context of both tax increment financing uh, and a deal to essentially lease out parking meters throughout the city of Chicago where the city council essentially had no knowledge of what the deal was. They were assured everything was on the up and up and that uh, city taxpayers would benefit. But of course, that, it just hasn't turned out that way. And then you rattle through a bunch of other examples where uh, it turned out very
1: similarly. That's correct. I mean, I think uh, for many people that have lived in Chicago for quite some time, that is financially one of the most egregious deals. Uh, they sold the right to collect party, parking concessions for 75 years uh, for $1.1 billion, which has been adjusted downward. It's about a billion dollars. And although they promised to take that in over the 75-year period into their budget, in fact, they took it in in less than 18 months. And so uh, now that entity is collecting about $150 million a year from those parking concessions, and that'll continue to go up. It's been one of, if you invested in that, it's gotta be one of the best investments you've ever made in your life.
2: And I'll only add that the reason that that, that sort of deal is able to be um, put on alderman aldermanic desks and passed you know, in a matter of hours, essentially, is that they are so preoccupied with what's going on in their ward. Um, they have no incentive, the, the staffing that are provided to Aldermen almost all of their time is taking up uh, is taken up by serving constituent concerns that someone has a pothole, someone needs a sidewalk cafe permit, someone's putting up a sign at their business. All of these sorts of minor things require the, uh, the at least ambivalence of one's elected official in order to get done. And that's the environment in which corruption thrives. And we're seeing that um, most recently with the longest serving alderman, Ed Burke, who's been in office since before the Beatles broke up and is now the subject of a federal indictment, not for you know, the parking meter deal, but for shaking down a Burger King franchisee for uh, essentially what amounts to, to a driveway permit.
0: The There are 50 aldermen in Chicago how does that
1: compare with other large cities? So we we uh, we've done a study of the top fifteen cities in the United States, and so we take the the population divided by the number of councilmen, and the average, which includes Chicago, is about one hundred and seventeen thousand constituents per councilperson. Then you look at Chicago, and we have fifty-four thousand. So. Uh, If we just had parity with the average, we'd cut the council down from 50 to 20, which ironically was recommended by a blue ribbon commission uh, that the mayor uh, set up back in 1953 to study reform of city government in Chicago.
2: And ultimately, we're not trying to dilute representation in any way. But the point being that when you're in a city like Los Angeles where you have 200,000 or so constituents per alderman, it is uh, impossible for them to be concerned with things like who's getting their garbage picked up and who's got the signed permit and who has all these, you know, this bureaucratic
1: minutiae.
2: It would be just impossible to deal with in the office of an elected official. So they don't deal with
1: it. Yeah. Another way to look at this. Uh, is just the vocabulary and the culture. In uh, other cities, they recognize the city council is the citywide legislative function, and they they study and rule on big issues that affect the entire city. In Chicago, we have the aldermanic system, the only major city with an alderman, and and their territory is not a district. It is called a ward. Well, alderman comes from the old English elderman, village chief, and the ward uh, are all the people that are dependent upon that village chief. So really, Chicago's political structure are 50 different villages and then one big chief, the mayor, and he calls all the shots on citywide matters.
0: You write here uh, in your book, the Chicago Home Rule Commission, this is the report you mentioned earlier, yes. issued a report entitled Modernizing a City Government. Uh, the report states, in part, the ward system was established to enable aldermen to uh, service their constituents. The nature of the service function has changed materially, however, in the last three decades. This is the 20s, 30s, and 40s, presumably. Uh, As a consequence of the increased professionalization of social service work, the development of service activities by trade and labor associations, and the coming of the so called welfare state.
2: So that was written in 1956. um, Uh,
1: 54. uh, It was written in 53, published in 54.
0: So, uh, what is the problem with having so many aldermen? You mentioned that they are uh, primarily worried about local concerns in their wards, but aldermen themselves receive. A huge pile of money that they can spend essentially at their discretion anywhere in their ward.
2: Yes, there's a huge advantage. This is called a menu money, um, essentially. And it's about $1.2 million that they get uh, every single year to do with as they wish. Um, And it's essentially an, an incumbency protection program. And we see that. In lots of different elements of city government, we see it in the timing of elections, which is we are the only major city to hold our municipal elections in February. So only the most motivated people vote uh, during our Chicago winters. Um, We see it in this pile of money that's granted to aldermen to spend on favored projects that benefit people who um, are politically connected, of course. Uh, and we see it in the nature of their responsibilities. It's very difficult for you, as I said earlier, as a small business owner, when you're relying on, uh, at least the ambivalence of someone who is an elected official. So naturally those are the people who give money to aldermen, um, who are expected, um, to give money to their aldermen in order to be in their good graces when they inevitably must go to them for some kind of basic city service.
1: Caleb, uh, another, uh, comment about that. A lot of people, when they read the book, they focus on the number of aldermen and and they say, what's wrong with the number of aldermen? And there, I, I will get to that in a second, but but first, uh, we recommend uh, a number of changes in city government, not just the change in the number of aldermen. We talk about who presides over the city council, how the city council organizes itself, how you develop a uh, Uh, legal framework for city government in a constitutional uh, system, a city charter that is approved by voters. So it's not just one issue, but I will tell you that uh, there is commentary, even though it's not proven scientific research, that the fewer uh, legislators you have and the more constituents you have per legislator improves the quality. Uh, and it's no secret, uh, as we show in our corruption chapter, that uh, more city councilmen have been uh, indicted and convicted uh, in Chicago than any other major city. And that continues to this day.
0: You talk uh, a bit about pensions as well. This is a, a subject that of great interest to me as well, uh, being from Kentucky, which has one of the worst pension systems in America. and. Um, It seems that Chicago looks a lot like Detroit when it comes to pensions. Is that fair?
1: Well, uh, it is fair to an extent. Surprisingly, the amount of pension debt in Chicago dwarfs what Detroit had going into its bankruptcy. And uh, Detroit's bankruptcy was a little bit different. It had about $18 billion worth of city debt. And only about four billion dollars worth of pension debt. Uh, Chicago, uh, just this the corporation of Chicago has about 10 billion dollars worth of uh, general obligation debt, uh, which is way too high, but it has 43 billion dollars worth of pension debt. Uh, it's got more pension debt than 44 of the 50 United States. So uh, it's just it's overwhelming.
2: But congratulations on living in Kentucky, which I think is the only one of the only places that can live up
0: to Illinois's uh, pension debt. So solidarity with you. <laughs> so what I mean? What brought this about? I mean, if, if this is this is a municipal system, it is not run directly by the state. Well,
1: uh, it is. Uh, it requires state legislation. So uh, any action taken by the city. Uh, has to be enacted through the state pension code. But whatever the city wants to do, they lobby the state and the state passes it. And it's no secret that the state of Illinois also has pension problems. So it is an epidemic of uh, pension uh, malpractice, both at the state and city level. And it's true in many other cities in Illinois. But in specifically in Chicago how it got to this point is that once again uh for budget convenience the mayor is able to come to the city council and then go around the city council go to the state legislature and get whatever he wants to do uh or she now uh, uh they can they can seek whatever legislation they would like uh to make it easy for them to balance their budget. And this has taken this has gone on for decades. It it went on before we had the 1970 Illinois Constitution, which has a provision that guarantees pensions to every public employee. But it's gone on since then and things have gotten worse, including in the past 10 years. And the only thing I'll
2: add to that is just the structural concern in Chicago uh, we look at in terms of budget and finance, and it relates to pensions in some sense, is we looked at essentially three fiscal firewalls that you may have um, in a major city. Uh, And we looked at all 15, uh, the 15 largest U.S. cities. And the three fiscal firewall practices we looked at were, one, uh, an independently elected city controller or manager, where there is some give and take with the mayor on budgetary matters. Uh, The second is a city council that meaningfully engages in the budget process. And the third is some sort of voter approval for tax hikes or new debt. And among the 15 largest cities, Chicago is the only one lacking all three. So we are by no means is pension debt a problem unique to Chicago, uh, but those lack of institutional best
0: practices
2: for budgeting has certainly not helped us. Why hasn't
0: the state done something? It, it you know uh, chicago exists at the pleasure of springfield uh why has the state not jumped in and said look this is a this is a problem that you know they don't want they don't want chicago's liabilities to fall up to the capital uh, and, and and no state wants to deal with specifically the the problems of of a city even a, a very economically productive city uh but why hasn't the state jumped in and set and place some limits on how Chicago does business? Part of the reason is that
2: uh, the power structure, at least in the General Assembly in Springfield, has been completely dominated by people with parochial interests in the city of Chicago um, for decades. So the same sort of incentives, not to let's to put it in the parlance of one great book on on uh the old daily political machine is don't make no waves don't back no losers so there's very little incentive for the uh speaker of the house who's been there for 34 the last 36 years for instance to make waves when it comes to things that are going to affect uh his own
1: backyard near midway airport but i'll let ed take the rest of that i i think that uh austin has hit it we have a political culture Uh, that is now institutionalized in a a very illegitimate state constitution uh, that allows no referendums, no voter initiatives. Uh, Everything is dominated by the state. And as Austin mentioned, we have a speaker of our state House of Representatives who's been in office for over three decades. And he was also uh, a part of writing that constitution in 1970 and uh on many measures the constitution we got in 1970 was worse than the one that we had prior to that so it's it's a combination of the culture that gets institutionalized uh in the most hardened laws which is our state constitution
0: you talk a lot about policing as well you ref, you refer specifically to uh the death of laquan mcdonald in 2014 and how the city's legal department Held out for a long time, providing uh, some pretty basic information about that shooting. Um, you know, and I've in in my t- talking to people who deal in public records, Illinois itself has a has a very uh, bad record when it comes to making things public, and Chicago I uh, understand is even worse. So
2: in Chicago, at least in the case of LaClaude McDonald. Um, we saw exposed uh, in a, a very brutal spotlight um, the nature of the city's law department, which is essentially a uh protective body for the mayor and those documents it it seems it, it stands to reason were held from public view for purely electoral purposes so uh yes that and and police accountability is a problem uh everywhere not just chicago but in chicago it is certainly among among the worst and what we looked at throughout the book um was what can we learn from other places and and one example that really stood out to us was los angeles which had a a police policing reputation as bad or worse than present-day chicago um post rodney king um and today you know, that that police department is by no means perfect, but their uh, public safety is better in comparison to many other major cities. And um, the trust between communities and police uh, and the city government um, seems to function much more effectively. And two of the major things that they attribute that to are, one, um, an independent police commission that is uh, appointed by the mayor, but is that is the end uh, of the mayor's influence in that body. They, they appoint the, the police superintendent. They, they serve as a board um, to run sort of the vision, mission, strategy of, of Los Angeles policing. The second major thing that they did in California was establish a peace officer's bill of rights, which essentially took everything but wages and benefits out of the collective bargaining process for police officers. Now contrast that with Chicago, where you have a process between essentially the head of the FOP, which is the police union, and the mayor making deals, but it's called collectively bargaining, but there's nothing collective about it. It's two people sitting in a room essentially making political deals. So in Chicago, that's manifested itself in things like, hey, you guys are gonna take a pay freeze or a lower raise over the next five years, but you can get you know 24 hours of breathing room after you shoot someone. Uh, to get your story straight, you get to review evidence, um, you know, prior to making that statement and revise your statements. So those are the types of deals that have been done that that have really um, eroded trust in in Chicago policing.
1: Caleb, but I'd like to uh, add to that by uh, re re characterizing what Austin said, and that is that the whole book talks about reforms in many aspects of government that other cities have undertaken over the last 120 years. And the big reform in policing that uh, you see in city after city in the United States is civilian oversight of the police. And Los Angeles is the best example. They've got the golden mean where their, their police board, uh, their police commission, they are civilians. They're appointed by the mayor, but they oversee the police department. We don't have that in Chicago. And that's why we have, uh, as the U.S. Department of Justice said in their report, trust has been broken between the community and the police. So it's, it's the big picture is civilian oversight. How can you do it intelligently? And that's, that's what we advocate for.
0: So if you guys had a switch uh, to make one change – uh, in the structure of the city of Chicago's government, what would it be? Our number one on the list with a bullet is a voter-approved
2: city charter. Chicago is the largest major U.S. city by far without this, this basic foundational governing document from which all other government operations flow. So without that, Chicago um, doesn't have a modern form of governance, but it doesn't even have a vocabulary to talk about how to get there. And that's because we don't have this basic uh, document of a city charter, a city constitution. So that's our, our number one biggest recommendation.
1: Austin's right. Uh, the The silver bullet here. Uh, there's no assurance that uh, if a group got together and drafted a city charter, it would be uh, uh wise and uh, intelligent reform, but you got a better chance than if you don't have one in the first place. And most other major cities have it. And it can encompass everything that we talk about in the book. It can encompass policing, schools, finances, pensions, city council, elections. Anything that you want to change can be done through a voter approved city charter. As we mentioned before, there are
0: 50 aldermen in the city of Chicago, which uh, per capita is a lot more aldermen than you would expect or city council members than you would expect for a, a city the size of Chicago. How are elections run there? What do districts look like? And why are so many city council votes so lopsided?
1: First of all, you have to go back to the election. Municipal elections in Chicago are in the on the last Tuesday of February in the odd year after uh, uh, elections for statewide offices and countywide offices. Now we're the only major city that has elections in February, and if you've ever been in Chicago in February, uh, you're not taking shade under a palm tree. So. Uh, it has uh, been reported and documented that it was designed that way to discourage voter turnout. Uh, we generally get between 30 and 33% voter turnout for the municipal elections. So uh, so when you have that, the only people that can dominate in an, that election cycle are the special interests, the turnout. So uh, that is – one of the problems that you have, and it it has resulted in the incumbency, and a, another reform we talk about is term limits. As Austin mentioned earlier in this podcast, we have one alderman who is now under indictment, who has been in the city council for over 50 years. So you need to have uh, a way to have term limit, fewer councilmen, Get them elected in November when more people are turning out and want to do something about it. So uh, it is a whole structure of government in Chicago that discourages deliberative democracy. And elections are a key part of it. And
2: not only the timing of elections, but essentially who votes for who. So the way that the ward map, there's 50 wards. And so you need to, ever after every census, chop up... Um, Chicago into 50 little pieces and that is there's no real process by which that uh, that should be done that is instantiated in um in a city charter or even in state law. So essentially what it was last time around after the, following the 2010 census was Mayor Rahm Emanuel, um Ed Burke, the gentleman we spoke about who is under federal indictment and another uh, major political power broker broker in in Chicago Dick Mell. Uh, essentially sat in a room together and drew the map and included in that map was drawing out one of the most vocal critics of the mayor, uh, drew his home out of his, uh, his own district. So he couldn't run there again. So, you know, not only are, is there voter suppression in terms of the, the seasonality of when, when the election is, you also have politicians um, picking their voters. And of course, that has become a very big national conversation in the wake of the, the Supreme Court's gerrymandering decision.
1: A corollary issue is the fact that in 1995, the city also did away with partisan elections. So in essence, it outlawed the Republican Party in the city of Chicago. And consistently, when we have statewide or national elections, you get uh, between Twenty and twenty three percent of voters that vote for a Republican at the top of the ticket, whether it's the president of the United States, the governor, uh, the United States senator. So there are Republicans in Chicago. But when you have, quote, nonpartisan elections, then it's only a competition among Democrats and everything is a primary. And they even call the, the election in February the consolidated primary. So that's another election problem in Chicago. Go back to the big picture here. It seems that
0: the the biggest problem in Chicago is that the power of the mayor's office is unchallenged, essentially in law, and all of the residual power, as you uh, refer to it in the book, pretty much just flows back into the mayor's office.
2: Yeah, we think, as we said earlier, this... Whereas uh, uh, an important point to make is that every city used to be like this—that this was the de facto form of governance in major U.S. cities at the turn of you know the 20th century—and and yet, uh, while other cities have moved away um, from that model, have have given more power to city legislators, have uh, devolved power away from the mayor, have taken a lesson from the U.S. Constitution, and have said, "How do we check the political ambitions of every?" Um, element of government. Um, Not to say every other city is perfect, but they have moved largely away from this model. Uh, Chicago has stayed the same. So what we simply ask in the book is an intellectual exercise of what if Chicagoans picked up their head and looked around at what is possible.
1: So, Caleb, your, your term of uh, residual power is an actual political science term that is used to talk about the structure of city government, not just in Chicago, but nationwide. And in Chicago, we have the exact inverse of the 10th Amendment to the United States. The 10th Amendment says that all powers uh, not granted to the federal government shall be uh, allocated to the states, and if not the states, the people. In Chicago, any power not granted to anybody else resides in the mayor. So it is the inverse of what you have in the federal government. Ed
0: Backrack and Austin Berg are authors of The New Chicago Way. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.